this is what love looks like. This is what I mean when he says, if you, you do all these gifts and you have all these gifts, but you have not love, meaning it's not fulfilling these roles within the church, then it doesn't amount to anything. Love has an actual definition. It's defined ultimately by Jesus Christ upon the cross. Ultimately, that is what we see as the ultimate picture of God's love, that he would lay down his life, not for his friends, but those who hated him, despitefully used him, mocked him. He laid his life down for them, for you, for me. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. all of you tonight. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? And uh, we're going to be talking about the greatest gift. So let's actually start in verse 31 of chapter 12. It says, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night and a time where we can set aside to worship you, to again be strengthened and encouraged through your word. And uh, God, we pray, would you speak to us in the power of the Holy Spirit and teach us what it is to follow you, how to, um, how to worship you, Lord. God, we pray that you would make us more like you as we uh, study your word together. So Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we concluded our uh, mini-series through the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So for the last eight weeks or so, we've been kind of stopping and camping on chapter 12 and studying through these different gifts that Paul lists are given to the church for the carrying out of the ministry of God until the return of Christ. And so uh, we spent time looking at the gift of tongues, the gift of healing, um, basically all the ones that Zach taught. You should go back and listen to those. Um, Last week we finished uh, by going through the gifts of leadership and administration and um, just kind of what that looks like on a practical level, what what we're called to do. Um, Those that do serve in that capacity and called by God in that capacity, we're called to serve just like Jesus did, and he was our example. And so moving from chapter 12, we are now, you know, surprise, surprise, going into chapter 13, which is the love chapter. Now, when we read this chapter, when we study this chapter, we have to read it within the context in which it is written. 1 Corinthians 13 does not stand alone on it by itself, but it stands within the context of chapter 12, chapter 14, Okay. So, so there's a point to all of this. There's a reason within the context and the thread in which Paul is writing, there is a meaning to this. There's a purpose behind this. This is not just here so that at a wedding there's something to read, right? If you're a, a bridesmaid and you're like, this is it. This is the scripture. Like, love is kind. And, and if you've done that, you know, God bless you. I've done the same thing. Like, I do weddings and I'm like, love is patient. Love is kind. It is. That's exactly what it is. But it is more than that. So... Um, We have to read it within the context in which it is written. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to the church to carry out the ministry until Christ comes. Now the Lord provides assistance when we step out to serve him. God will come alongside and it benefits not only those who are unsaved to reach the lost, but to serve one another. And we've been talking about that for weeks. That the point of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is not so that we can sit here and be like, 
rad, I have these gifts, but they're for the benefit of all, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says. It's for you, it's for me, all of us benefit from each other as we use our gifts to serve the Lord and it strengthens the body of Christ. That he later goes on to say in the chapter that no one can say like I'm better than one another because each of us has a specific purpose within the body of Christ to, um, to be used by the Lord in that degree and in that way. And so the Lord gifts as he wills and we wanna be open to what God would gift us with, 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 that God would give us, all right? The, yeah, you got it. But it benefits not only those who are unsaved to reach the lost, but those as we serve one another. But each one is necessary and vital to prosper God's people. And the Lord does gift. We talked about how every single person has at least one. Now you can have multiple gifts of the Holy Spirit, but everyone has at least one. So as the Lord does gift, which is encouraging and should be encouraging to us. This should be encouraging to us that God does gift and he does give us with the power and strength of the Holy Spirit that we can serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. That as we step out in faith, God gifts with the ability to carry out the ministry until Christ comes. And as we move into chapter 13, we have to remember that this is our context, okay? This is the, the thread in which we're moving through. And in verse 31 of chapter 12, it begins with this, this kind of understanding of where we're going to head next. And that is, he says, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. This, this understanding here, he says, I want you to desire or earnestly desire the best gift. Now, we spent the last eight weeks talking about how no gift is better than the other. And so you're like, that word best usually means best. So there's like a higher one. So what, what Andrew's been lying. No, that's not what I have been doing. Um, here's what he means. To earnestly desire is translated from a single Greek word. It, it is similar to the word zeal. And zeal means heat or intensity, but to desire can also be translated in other places as to covet. So what Paul is saying here is, is that these are the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we as the church, this is our response. We should earnestly desire and want what the Lord would give to us. These are things that we should desire and should be praying that God would gift us in. Now when he talks about the best gift, it means that we should desire the best gift for the situation that I am in. Because every gift is available to the believer depending on when we need it. That God can gift us with any of these gifts in the moment in which we need it for the purpose uh, or, or for the situation that we are in. But the be like, basically like the best tool for the job. I don't know about you, but I can make anything a hammer. Right? Anything can become a hammer, but it's the best tool for a job like that is a hammer. Would you all agree? Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's the, the stick with the head thing on it, and you hit a hand, you know? You'll get it. Do Google it later. But within life, there are certain contexts in which these gifts fit better within that context. For instance, shorts are great. They are. Shorts are fantastic but within their proper context. Weddings are not the proper context for shorts, right? In the same way, some of you, some of you haven't learned that yet, but, but a wedding is not the proper context, unfortunately. 
Everyone loves summer weddings, and we're like, that's where we wear the most amount of clothing is at a wedding. You're like, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. Shorts are great, but they have a proper context. The gifts of the Spirit are, are, are all wonderful. They're great gifts from God, but each of them has a proper context for us to use them in. This is the situation that was, was taking place in Corinth. There was a neglect of the gift of prophecy, and there was an abuse of the gift of tongues. So that, that's what Paul's addressing here. There's an abuse of the gift of tongues where everyone is just shouting wildly in tongues. Meanwhile, the gift of prophecy is sitting alongside. And Paul's saying each of those things is wrong. Both of those are out of balance and out of whack. Like you're neglecting this gift that God has given to you, which is absolutely, it has one of the, the most, it's used within the congregation, whereas tongues is, is more something that is to be used privately for, for between you and the Lord, where prophecy is used amongst the congregation for one another. And so he's saying this abuse and this neglect, both are wrong, and this is what he's addressing throughout this, this chapter and, and helping them to understand that there is a proper context in which these things are used. And then he says at the end of verse 31, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now this is an interesting phrase, a more excellent way. More is the word kata in the Greek. It, it means beyond, like to throw beyond. Excellent, this word excellent is the word hyperbole. It's where we get our word hyperbole, meaning to exaggerate, okay? Like to exaggerate a statement or claim, but not meant to be taken literally. Like I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. You're not actually going to eat a horse. She's old as the hills. You know, that's an exaggeration. I died of embarrassment. No, you didn't. He's as skinny as a toothpick. That might be true. He's as tall as a beanpole. It's raining cats and dogs. Like, these are all hyperbole. These are exaggerations. It's where we get that word ourselves. It's the word hyperbole there in the Greek. So it's more, meaning to throw beyond. And then you have this word to exaggerate or or beyond measure is what it literally means. And then you have this word way, which in the Greek is the word hadas. It's a traveled path. So if, if we're to put this together within scripture, Paul is saying here that we want to earnestly desire the gifts that God would give to us so that we can best minister not only to one another, but to those who are outside the covenant promises of God, those who are lost. And he says, but I'm going to show you it even more. It, it, the the phraseology would be, this way is so much better that it's better than the best. Like, that's, that's what it comes down to. Like, if I was like, Zach, can you throw me a water bottle? And he chucks it, like, all the way over to the other side of the street. That's the understanding, or that's the idea between more and hyperbole. It's beyond me, and it's way exaggerated. Like, I just, we're right here. You know what I mean? Or if I was like, Kyle, could you, can I borrow your muscles? And he's like, here. <laughs> and I was like, thanks, man. But he threw him like way too far. You know what I mean? Just way beyond me. I forgot the last part of that sentence. So that's the application. That's what he's saying. I'm going to show you a more excellent way here. And, and remember, we have to read this within our context. Hmm. So here's the application of that. Why is this important? Why did I spend the last 15 minutes talking about Greek words and things like that? Here's what Paul is not saying. Just as important as it is to understand what it is saying, it's important for us to understand what it's not saying. 
Paul is not saying that there are two categories of people here. There's one group that steps out to serve the Lord, and the Lord meets them and gifts them with what they need to carry out the ministry. And then there's this other category of people that are just going to be super loving and love people. He's not saying that's, that's not what's happening here. That is not what Paul means. These chapters do not cancel each other out, but rather they complete each other. Chapter 13 does not cancel out chapter 12. So he's not saying, like, there's all these gifts, but he's like, but there's a better gift. Like, forget everything I just said. This is the one you should desire. He's saying, no, 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 no. Without this right here, what I'm going to describe in chapter 13, without this, then all these gifts used without love, guess what? They mean absolutely nothing. So these are completed in love. And remember, there is a discrepancy. There's an abuse of a gift, and there is a, a neglect of a gift. And the reason they were having so many problems is, Paul said, you, you don't lack any spiritual gift. I mean, God has blessed you beyond measure. I mean, you guys are, are, are speaking in tongues, prophecy. I mean, God is working. People are getting saved. But he says, the problem that you're having is that you lack love within those gifts. So you're using them to lord over people. You're using them to abuse other people. You're using them for your own selfish ambition. And he says that will amount to nothing. You're using God's gift in the wrong way, in the wrong context. You're wearing shorts at a wedding, basically. <laughs> and so this is what he is saying, that a person who steps out to serve the Lord, to participate with the Lord, but does it with love, that this is the far better way. Like, this is how it should be done. So verse 1. <laughs> Sorry, I thought we were further along. Verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and the angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Now, love is not something new, with, new to the Bible. It's not, Paul's not writing this letter and he's like, oh man, I forgot to write about love. Let me just like plot this in here in a weird part of the text. It's not like Paul gets to chapter 13 and he's like, I, for, I forgot to write about this. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11 all talk about how we are to put others first, to deny self, not from a place of religious obligation, but out of a love for Jesus and a love for one another. Remember, he talked about how they were eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, and they're having all these different issues. And he's like, listen, if we would just love people properly, although you have liberty, if you have not love combined with that liberty, it's going to be abusive. It's going to be harmful. It's actually a way in which you can uh, trip someone up. And Paul says, if I never eat if meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat it again because I love Jesus so much and therefore I love my brother so much. Because I love Jesus so much, I love others so much. It was a product of his love for the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, right? He says, I have rights. <laughs> like, I have liberty. I have rights, which is something we all love to like, I, I love liberty. I love freedom. For the July is coming up. We get to blow stuff up. Like, it's the best time of year. We don't even give each other gifts. We just blow stuff up because we're free. And we're like, that's right, Canada. That's right, England. That's right. Like, we are free. Take that or whatever. Like, bam. 
I love it. I, I, I love freedom. I love the fact that I, I live in America. We live in the greatest country ever and all of that. Um, but listen, Paul says, although I am free and I have rights, he says, I have made myself a slave to all men, a servant to all men. Why? So I can win people to Christ, which means my liberty will take a back seat in order that people might see Jesus. Because that is more important than my own rights and my own liberty. Okay, that, that's a, that is an obvious illustration of someone who has been transformed by love. Like that's not something that comes natural to anyone. Um, it's something that has come from a, a revolutionized, radically changed life. Because when God saved Saul of Tarsus, Saul was transformed. Suddenly, he no longer was taking life from others, but was laying his own down for others. Because he loves Jesus, therefore he loves what Jesus loves. And what Jesus loves is people. That's what he loves. Every person. I know it sounds cliche and like kindergartner-ish to be like, Jesus loves everyone. But do you realize the capacity of that, that only God can do that? Like only an omniscient, omnipotent, benevolent God can love everyone perfectly. That, it's such a doctrinally rich statement that Jesus loves everyone. So, so love's not like a new thing in the Bible. Paul, this isn't just the only place that the Bible talks about love, but love is actually the greatest commandment that we're given. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 that we're called to love with all that with all that I am, to love others like I love myself, and this is the key to all. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, they ask him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So we're to love who? God. We're to love God with, with what? With all that we are. Like, that is the greatest command. We're to love God with all that we are. And then he says, and the second is like it, that you shall love who? Your neighbor as yourself. So we're to love not only God with all that we are, we're to love others just like we love ourselves. In the same way that we are self-preserving, um, in the same way that we are, are self-affectionate, in the sense that we, we obviously... Pride is an issue. In the same way, he says, if you love yourself, listen, you need to love other people in the same way that you preserve your own comfort, your own resources, whatever. You're to love others that way. So I love God with all that I am. And I'm going to love others. Who fits within that category? When Jesus says that you're to love others, or he says love your neighbor as yourself, people will even ask him, like, who's my neighbor? Like, how far does that extend? Like, how many neighbors do I have to love? I have neighbors, um, obviously. I don't live, like, on a ranch by myself. But I can literally, like, reach out and touch my neighbor's wall. His name's Scott. He's a good guy. I'm called to love Scott as loud as his cars are. Like, I'm, I'm called to love him. I'm called, I'm called to love Brooke and Horace, the people next to me, these old people from Pennsylvania that never throw my kids' balls over the fence, ever. Never. They, like, just keep them. <laughs> like, it's so rude. Like, you just toss it back over. I'm called to love them. We're called to, I'm called to love John across the street. But it doesn't just mean I love the people on Calle Portola. I'm called to love. Who is he talking about? He's talking about everyone. He's talking about everyone. 
It extends to those that live or are living within the world that we live in. That is the extent. On these two commandments, Jesus said, hang all the law and all the prophets, meaning that this is the key to all. But love is also the chief evidence of God working in my life. It's the chief evidence of God working in my life. Romans 5, 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Galatians 5 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is, this is the context in which we are living in. Not only is it the chief evidence of God working in my life, but it should secondly be the driving force for serving the Lord. Like, God never twists your arm for you to step out and serve him. God promises that you will be blessed. And listen, in serving other people, he's like, you're going to be blessed. It's going to be awesome for you. Not only that, I'm going to give you the gifts of the Holy Spirit so that you can deal with the most annoying people in the world. Right? So you can love people the way that you're supposed to, supernaturally. That if you will just do the natural, meaning you'll step out, God does the super and will come alongside and supply all that we need through his spirit. He says, this is the blessing that's attached. This is the fruit. This is the evidence of God working in my life, but it is also the driving force. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul writes, for the love of Christ compels us. The, the ESV says it controls us. It constrains us, other other translations say. Like he says, this is what it is. It's not because I want to be someone. It's not because I want this healing ministry. It's not because this is like how you make money. Paul says, it's because Christ loves me. Because Christ loves me and he loves you. This is what propels me forward and it compels me and drives me to serve Jesus because God is that good. That not only does he save me, he adds me to his church, he adds me to a body of believers, and then he gives me the opportunity to serve the people that he loves and shed his own blood for. Like, that's a good God. It should be the driving force for serving the Lord. But it is also how we reflect how God feels to the world. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. But what do we mean by love? Okay? This word has lost some of its um, oomph, if I could say, <laughs> within our culture. Like, I love pizza. I really do. Um, I love the ocean. I love um, those Scandinavian swimmers from Trader Joe's, okay? But I don't think, <laughs> that struck a chord. Um, I don't think, I always buy two bags, one to eat on the way home and one to give to my kids. I live five seconds from Trader Joe's. That's how fast those things go. But what do we mean by love? The Greek word, okay, is the word agape. I'm sure you've seen it on coffee mugs, on pens, on the camp shirt that you went to in junior high, like, agape. <laughs> and so even that sometimes like loses its, its oomph behind it. But often it's the love that is associated with God's love for us. Alan Redpath, he says, it is actually absorption of every part of our being in one great passion. It has little to do with mere emotions 
It indicates love that deliberately by the act of the will chooses its object and through thick or thin regardless of its attractiveness of an object. It goes on loving continually and eternally. That is a great definition. That is the type of love that Paul is talking about here when he says that though I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not this kind of love, what does he say? I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In verse 1, it tells us that without love, love affects the gift that God has given to us. When he talks about this, this ability to speak and the speaking gifts, we talked about tongues. And later, I don't think he's talking about the gift of tongues here because later in chapter 14, he's going to really dig into that. Zach taught on the gift of tongues through chapter 14. But as he, as he describes this, I think what he's talking about is eloquence of speech. Being able to craft words and to speak in such a way that draws people in. Right? It helps when someone has the ability Perhaps not tonight, but has the ability to keep your attention. You've sat in, in, you've sat in studies or you've been to a, a work meeting and you're like, this is the most boring thing I've ever heard. I don't even know what the guy's saying. Just sounds like the Charlie Brown teacher. You know, just this is awful. I don't know what this person is saying. So eloquence, it, it has its place. After all, uh, Paul's gospel presentation was incredible at Mars Hill. Stephen's sermon before he was martyred was incredibly eloquent and well put together. Even Peter in Acts chapter 4 spoke in such a way that the religious leader said, surely these guys have been with Jesus. Like there's something going on here for them to be able to talk this way. Jesus spoke in the synagogue with people and they marveled even when Jesus was 12 years old. So eloquence has its place. So it helps to have a way with words, but without love behind the message, it's annoying. It's eloquence without love. The message is then drowned out. It just becomes obnoxious. And that's, Paul's saying, you could speak in such a way where, where, man, it's so eloquent, so put together, but people can see right through it as empty and nothing. The gift of the Holy Spirit and the ability to teach or speak in that way, if love and the reason you're not doing it is because you love Jesus and because you love others, it becomes obnoxious. It drowns out what's being said. I, th I think a really weird, perhaps, illustration would be, remember the woman who was following Peter in Philippi, and she was shouting, like she was demon possession. She's shouting, these are the servants of the Most High God proclaiming the way of salvation. Like that's a great message. That's absolutely true. But behind it, you could see that people were like running from these guys. They wanted nothing to do with them. Finally, Peter turns around, or Paul turns around, Peter turns around, excuse me. Paul turns around, thank you. One of, the, one of the apostles turns around and he tells like, come out and like cast the demon out. So you can proclaim something, but without love connected to it, man, it's just obnoxious. No one ever, there's no like Spotify playlist of just symbols. You're like, oh yeah, hit that one again. Oh man, this is amazing. Do you even get a scholarship for playing the symbols? I found this out. I was like, dad, why didn't... <laughs> You know that kid in the marching band at like college football games, he's on the field and he's doing this stuff and he hits the cymbals like every five minutes. It's like, Psh! kid's going to school for free. It's ridiculous. Someday he's going to make millions of dollars maybe 
or just living in his mom's basement after college, but he is, he's on a full ride for playing these cymbals. Now imagine if you have a whole marching band of kids just going, psh, psh, psh. it's called toddlers. Like that's incredibly obnoxious. Paul likens the gift, like this eloquent gift of the Holy Spirit to speak and to craft words in order, he's like, even if it's spoken in the way that heaven is that eloquent as it could be, if love is not behind it, then it just becomes obnoxious. And so it affects the gift. But not only does it affect the gift, it affects the giver. Look at verse two. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I, I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. The gift of prophecy, which we talked about a few weeks ago, that potentially could have the biggest effect on a person's life because it's God's word speaking to them uh, directly, causing change and transformation. If you've ever been in a Bible study and you're like, who told this guy about everything that I was going through? Why is he keeps looking right at me? It's like he's talking right to me. He's like, I gotta get out of here. It's making me itchy. This is horrible. That's the gift of prophecy in action. And you're experiencing it. You're on the receiving side of it. That's for you. God, in all that he is, cares so much about you that he would speak directly to you through his word. P potentially prophecy that has the biggest impact on someone's life, he says. Or the gift of faith. Faith that is accomplishing monumental things, he says. A faith that no obstacle can shake or stop. That we look at it and go, man, that's impossible. But someone says, that there's no way that we're going to stop, that it's going to stop my God. My God's going to come through. With that kind of faith, faith that we would look at and say, man, that's substantial, that's powerful. Paul says, that kind of faith without love, he says, I am nothing. It's nothing. You see, the context is really important to understand what's being said. He's likening, back this to, he's likening it back to these spiritual gifts, these people that were gifted by God. And he's saying, if you're not using it with love attached, your love for God and your love for others, then it's obnoxious, it's chaotic, and what you think is, be, is you building your own kingdom, he's like, it's gonna come to nothing. It's gonna come to nothing. Not only does love affect the giver, it affects giving itself. Verse three he says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about giving and fasting and praying. These are all active parts of the Christian walk and Christian walk with the Lord. But Paul zooms in here for a second on giving. He says, if I give, and I give to someone who cannot reciprocate, right? He says, if I take all of my goods and all of my resources and I give it to someone who can't give it back. He said, you would say that's, that's dignified. Like that's, that's a good thing. It's like a good thing to do. That's a wonderful thing because someone who can't give it back to you or, or repay you. And that's, that's the idea of giving to the poor. It's to someone who, who can't give back. Out of your abundance, giving to someone who has little or, or nothing. We would all say that's commendable. But what if someone were to make the ultimate sacrifice to give their life, their body, he says, to be burned? Paul says, without love, it doesn't profit me anything. You're like, wait a second. Is there any biblical illustrations? Is this even possible? Like, can you do all of these things that was described and really do it in a way that's motivated by something else? Is it really, can it really be selfish? Do we have any other 
illustrations in the Bible that point to that. And I'm so glad that you asked that question because the answer is yes. The Bible talks about a prophet named Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of the Lord. But he betrayed that office because he loved money more than he loved God. Think of Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the, the, the high priest at the time of Jesus' uh, trial, death, and crucifixion. Caiaphas had discernment, but still sought to have Jesus killed. In John chapter 11, Caiaphas actually prophesies of, of what was to come. He was the high priest at the time, and he said, you don't know what you're talking about. This is, this is in the New Living Translation. He says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the nation to be destroyed. He did not say this on his own as high priest at the time. He was led to prophesy that Jesus would die with the entire nation. Caiaphas actually prophesies this, but yet still sought to see Jesus destroyed and killed. Think of Judas. Judas had knowledge, gift of knowledge. I mean, he sat at the feet of Jesus for three years, but without, um, but without love for the Lord, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So it is possible. It is possible. Prophecy, knowledge, faith, discernment, all these are gifts, but love is a grace and the primary evidence of the new birth of the Christian. Jesus said, they will know you, that you are my disciples by your love for one another. It's the marking, uh, it's the marking aspect of, of the Christian walk and how people know who we believe in and what we believe in. After all, love is the greatest thing. And that's what chapter three talks about. He goes on to say, love suffers long and is kind. And we're gonna get to that part in a minute. But love is the greatest thing. But in the church, we find it often be the hardest thing. I don't know about you, but it is hard to love, uh, love everybody. Like, I love my kids, but I don't love other people's kids. And as a children's ministry worker, I find that hard. Um, you know, some kids are more lovable than others. <laughs> you should serve down there sometime if you're looking for something to do. So love is the greatest thing. Often it's the hardest thing. But that's why in the next verse of chapter 14, verse 1, it says, pursue love. So Paul, he, he describes what love is, and then he says, our aim, our goal is to pursue love with one another. We're, we're supposed to be loving towards one another. Love is the defining quality of God, in fact. The Bible says that lo God is love. That, that's who he is. We could say much of his character and person, that, that is, he is holy, he is just, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, but he is also omnibenevolent, meaning that God is all-loving. He is all loving, meaning that God eternally gives of himself to others. John 4, 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is, a, this is a huge point that we need to understand. This does not mean, love does not mean that there is no call out on sin. This does not mean, Paul's not saying that from now on, nothing else matters in Scripture. Chapter 13 of, of 1 Corinthians does not by any means wipe out anything else that God has ever said. In fact, it only enforces it greater. That because God is love, because God is all loving, that God will judge sin. 
And because God loves us so much, God came and died for our sins. So it only enforces more that God is who he says that he is. Love is the defining quality and characteristic of God. But love is also common to all people. In the sense that everyone needs to be loved, desires to be loved, wants to find that kind of love. Not just in an eros, in a sexual type of way, but in a family type sense. That's why gangs are prevalent. Most of these guys are orphaned, fatherless, and they're looking for family, a place to belong. And there they are, found in a gang. Because this is my brothers, this is my family, right? It's just a misappropriation of what God has designed us to do, is to find love and relationship with him. Love is, a com is common to all humanity. In that we all have the capacity, the need for love, to give and to receive it. This is because we are created in his image, and love is a gift to humanity. But even though it is common to all humanity, I think it's safe to say there's a lack of love in the world today. It's the most common, yet it is the most scarce. We, we know we need it, hence all the love songs. All we need is love. If we just had more love. But the interesting thing is that what the world sings about and what it calls love is often just mushy, undefined sentimentalism. Have you seen those signs? I live, I live that way. I don't know if you guys have seen the signs that say like, we believe, and then all the things they believe in their yard. Just, you have every right to put that in your yard. But one of the things is love is love. Look at what it says in verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, uh, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will all vanish away. Listen, love is not love. Love is defined right here in the Bible. Because love is love means nothing. It doesn't make any sense. It means that love has no definition. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It absolutely does have a definition. This is, Paul saying, this is what love looks like. This is what I mean when he says, if you, you do all these gifts and you have all these gifts, but you have not love, meaning it's not fulfilling these roles within the church, then it doesn't amount to anything. Love has an actual definition. It's defined ultimately by Jesus Christ upon the cross. Ultimately, that is what we see as the ultimate picture of God's love, that he would lay down his life, not for his friends, but those who hated him, despitefully used him, mocked him, he laid his life down for them, for you, for me. Those who rebelled against him, those who spit upon him, those who whipped him, those who cursed him, those are the people, the very sins that we commit, the very sins that we've committed and will in the future. Jesus died, past, present, future, for those sins. Ultimately, that is the picture of love that we're given in Scripture. But the interesting thing is that what the world sings about and what it calls is an undefined sentimentalism, and what they want is the kingdom without the king. This is a kingdom idea. This is a Jesus idea that we are called to love one another. It's a common grace to all men. And we're, the, the ultimate thing is, is that Christ showed us what love's looking like. And that's what it's supposed to be like. And the world has adopted and said, yeah, we should love everyone. 
And they've redefined what love is and, and told us that love doesn't mean anything. Just let people do and be however they want to be. That's the most loving thing you can do. No, it's not. And this is where, where we come back to it. It's, it's the kingdom of God being ushered in, but they don't want the king to rule over them. This is a kingdom idea. The God that we worship is love, and as his people, we have been saved because of his love. We take on this new identity by faith as the beloved of God. This is the truest thing about us, that we are beloved of God in Christ Jesus. And not only that, but since, since we are the beloved of God, we become his children. We've been adopted into his family. There's a family bond that we now have because we have the same father, and we have this relation to each other that is thicker than blood then the defining mark of God's people ought to be love. Our most obvious attribute should be love amongst ourselves. The early church, we see it modeled in the sense that the people, anyway, there's more, it would go on and on. But Jesus is the model. Jesus is the model of this. His love is not contingent upon our lovability. He loved us when we were not lovely. While we had the stink of death upon us, he loved us. So our God, and this is who he is, and this is how he loves, this ought to be how we love as well. And it should be, honestly, the defining mark. He loved us not because we were lovely, but because that's who he is. He's a loving God. He didn't love me because um, of any other reason other than the fact that that's who God is. 1 John 4, 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be our propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And one of the ways that we feel the love of God is through one another and through the gifting of God's love by his spirit. God's love brought to full expression through you. I think the, the closest thing that we can get to this is baby love. Baby love. I have four babies. Well, not right now, but they were at one point. Just this squishy lump of flesh that like, can't give me anything back. Like, they, they don't... It's not like they make me money. Um, it's quite the opposite. Uh, but, but there's this, this love towards them that is indescribable. And I think that's the closest thing we can get, like this kind of love. But this is what God says. This is something that a lot of times is a choice that we have to make. Um, it, it's a type of love that you would do anything for that child because there will be, it, it is the most important thing in the world to you. You want them to have more, to go further than you ever did. No sacrifice seems too far for them. And you're suddenly willing to work harder, sleep less, to see that they are taken care of. Now, obviously, you can see it in other ways. Um, but I think the closest I've ever understood it is just when my kids were born, it was insane. It was insane. Um, just this love that was different. Like, it was just a different thing. But... Obviously, you can experience it in different ways. But all that to say, 
This is something that God invites us into and calls us to love this way. But so often this, like think, think about how wonderful this sounds. Doesn't this sound great? We're all supposed to love each other and it's a wonder, it's just a great thought. But so often we choose not to do it. Just, just out of like, no, I'm not going to do that. Or we look at it and we never fully like jump into it. It's like those people at Doheny that only hang out on the grass. And you're like, do you know like, that there's a whole ocean? Like there's sand. This is the best part. Like there's, there's sand. There's water. There's surf. There's a, there's a whole like huge ocean. There's a horizon. Like, and they're like, no, have you seen this grass? It's green. It's right. We're good. We got everything we need right here. So often, this is what God calls us into. But listen, for some reason, we refuse to jump into it. I don't know why. And I include myself. Like, I don't know why I choose to be grumpy and I choose to be cynical and I choose to be uh, critical of everything instead of just jumping in and being like, okay, God, you call me to love. I'm going to love. Just enjoying what God is, is created. And so often we, we refuse to jump into the waters of generosity and love for others. And all we hold on to is self. Ugh. Man. It's such a cheap substitute for what God offers. God offers love and, and just a joy that comes from serving others. And the devil says, no, here's something better. Just love yourself. Just find out the deepest you. That's where you're going to be most satisfied. Like, just love yourself. Take a day and love yourself. It's the stupidest thing. <laughs> Obviously, you should take care of yourself, like rest, play video games, whatever, do whatever you're going to do. Like, but don't just sit there. Like, the most miserable people I've ever met are those that are the most self-centered people I've ever met. Like, the problem is not the world. The problem is you. Like, you are a selfish mess. <laughs> I am a selfish mess. I really am. So often I, I hold on to my time, like my money, and just like all, you know, like this is mine and blind. And God says, if you want to be, you really want to experience like grace and love and truth and joy, why don't you just give it all away? Like, just be free of it. This is so counterintuitive. But that's, how, that's how God works. I'm not saying to sell all your possessions and, and move to a hut in Africa or anything like that. This is not a prophetic word over any of you. But I am saying, God has so much more for us than just being selfish and self-centered. There's a whole body of believers that God has called us to love and actually gifted us with the gifts of the Holy Spirit and we need the love of God in order to use it correctly and be blessed. So, um, Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, for this time. And, and Lord, we're so thankful that you love us and you care about us. And God, we pray, I pray tonight that that would sink deeper than just our minds. It would go deep within our soul. Deeper reminded of, of the love that you have towards us, God. That ultimately would be the thing that marks us as people. We're the beloved of God. It's the truest thing about us, God. And, and we, would, we would take that on as our identity tonight. Like, that's, that is who we are. We're, we're loved by God. Therefore, man, I'm so loved. I've been, I've been so well taken care of by my Heavenly Father. How could I not love 
other people. And so God, help us to jump in, not to just to keep, keep everyone at arm's length, but God, to jump in and, and allow ourselves to, to pour out from what you've poured into us. And Lord, we're thankful for the gift, uh, the gifts of the Spirit. And God, we're thankful for the grace uh, of your love that you've shed on us given to us, Lord. So I just pray, Lord, if there's anyone tonight that just needs to, again, to hear that, that they're loved by the Lord, I pray that you minister to that, minister that to them as, as we worship and sing to you. So God, we love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Can we all stand together?